Well, please, if you uh, would, take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be reading from verse 21 till the end of the chapter. If you would please stand. Gracious Heavenly Father, be pleased to grant that it would be your voice spoken through the Holy Spirit moving the Apostle to write this letter that would speak to us today. May your Spirit soften our hearts, make our minds attentive and alert, overcome all the things in us that would distract us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You may be seated. Imagine that you are in a court of law serving on a jury. A tragic and simplest crime has been committed. A young woman has been murdered. The killer showed no remorse, ordering fast food within the hour after the murder took place, nor any in the courtroom. The family uh, is uh, present in the courtroom, and their faces alternately show deep grief and hot anger. And it's time for the closing arguments. The attorneys uh, review the evidence. They summarize their case and make their appeal. And it's something like that that actually Paul is doing in this text. Now, admittedly, it might not seem like this. In fact, this may seem like a very strange passage of Scripture uh, to you. And it, it is, admittedly. It's a difficult passage. Uh, but my goal today is not to take apart every piece of it. 
but rather to show you the main things in this passage that uh, show us what Paul is teaching us about the gospel and why this is good news for those who have yet to come to Christ as well as for those who are seeking to follow him. And I'll also draw out some of the implications of this for our lives. Now, Paul, like an attorney, looks directly into uh, the eyes of the Galatians and says, you who want to be under the law, these Galatian Christians uh, have been told that in addition to trusting Jesus, that they need to add their obedience uh, to the law, their performance of the religious ceremonies of the law, everything from circumcision to keeping the Passover. They need to add their performance to the uh, obedience of Jesus Christ if they want to be fully accepted by God. Now, we've looked at this before and seen that being under the law cannot mean simply obeying the law. In chapter 5, Paul forbids immorality, hatred, and idolatry, and he commands love and faithfulness and self-control. These are all things that the law requires. For Paul to be under the law is a religious, a fundamental religious principle. And it's what Judaism had become in Paul's day. To rely on the law uh, uh, to be under the law is to rely on your obedience for your standing with God. And it's this teaching that Paul was raised on, trained in, and embraced with zeal. Now, just as an aside, because this is a point of some confusion for people, is that the approach of relating to God on the basis of your obedience and performance characterized first century Pharisaic Judaism. But it was a perversion of the revealed religion of the Old Testament, which is founded on promise. In the very beginning of the Bible, after Adam and Eve rebel, God makes a promise that there will be a redeemer who will come uh, from Eve. And uh, God re-enunciates this uh, promise uh, with Abraham, with the words telling him that from one of his descendants will come a blessing for all uh, the nations. And this message that's in this letter is particularly challenging to religious people. They find it deeply offensive. One of my heroes is John uh, Stott. And he writes, there are many people whose religion is fundamentally legalistic, who imagine that the way to God or the way to have God smile is by the observance of certain uh, rules. And we've seen this uh, before in, as we uh, opened up earlier in chapter 4. Our acceptance into God's family and enjoying his smile is based only on Jesus' performance and not at all on our own. Let me state it in the most pointed way I can and see you haven't fully grasped this until you understand you need to repent, not just of your evil deeds, but of your good ones. Because those good ones, if you don't have the right orientation to them, will be what you rely on, as if that makes you somehow acceptable uh, to God. 
The Christian does not rely on their obedience to the law, but lives out the law out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for them. But the truth is, is that most Christians are pulled one of either two ways. Some are pulled toward legalism of relying on the law, and others are pulled toward uh, antinomianism, which just means against the law, of a rejection of law and authority in their lives. And they are both equally toxic. To lean in one way or the other is to lose the life and power that the gospel gives to us. And if you think that moralism is better than uh, antinomianism, than being lawless, it shows you that you're leaning to one side. You haven't gotten yourself quite in the middle where you need to be. Now, I want to say this to those of you who are students here especially, um, but I want to invite all of you to hear what I have to say. Um, As a student... I was very irreligious. I didn't think anyone could tell me how to live. I was very resistant to authority. I uh, was to be nominated to the governor's uh, school for leadership. And when I was told I had to get a haircut, I decided that school was not for me. That's just the way, just something reared up in me uh, against that. I rejected uh, authority, and I rejected the idea of law. But at the same time, I had a sense that there was a spiritual reality to life. And so I designed my own religion, drawing on various religions, especially uh, from uh, the ancient East. And I rebelled against authority uh, uh, up until... Uh, Christ himself came into my life. And instead of getting the life I thought I would have, I hurt many other people and myself as well. When Christ confronted me, I discovered the joy of being loved and accepted by God. But gradually and very subtly, uh, I began to rely on my obedience for my standing with God. I was very proud. I was very critical of other people who, in my view, didn't measure up. But actually, I was hypocritical. I was touchy and brittle, and criticism was devastating for me. When I disobeyed and I became aware of my inconsistency, I was crushed. I felt deep shame. And though eventually I would come around to admitting my failure, it would mostly resolve to do better the next time. And this is often a vicious circle. I would fail eventually in my shame. I would acknowledge that I needed to repent. I would resolve to do uh, better, to try harder, and then I would fail again. I'd go around this circle many, many times. And so for many years, my life was like a yo-yo. It was up and down in my relationship with God. Uh, uh, When I uh, felt I was obedient, I felt accepted. And when I was disobedient, I was sure God despised me. And sometimes I would slip into just choosing to be disobedient and just push back against God's authority to direct my life. 
And really, this only began to change when I began to grasp the radical truth of the gospel, that nothing I did affected my standing uh, outside of my faith in, in Christ. I also needed to have my idolatry uncovered because the root of my sins arose there in one way or another, my wanting uh, to be my own uh, God. When we put our trust in what Christ has done and rely on his obedience only for our acceptance, we experience the freedom of the gospel and we obey out of a joyful gratitude because we're increasingly amazed that this utterly holy God could embrace someone who's not at all uh, holy. That in his holiness he can welcome us and love us as he finds us in Christ. And when we stay in this place we're increasingly freed of our selfishness and our idolatry. Now, it's not a totally upward path. It's not in my life. I don't suppose it is in anyone's uh, life. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want that for you. You students, I want that for you to know the joy of God's love and acceptance and to be set free from the utterly destructive acts that you will live out by if you don't know him and obey him. Now, the Galatians, who are real Christians, are being pulled over to this side of legalism. And Paul says uh, in the verse 21, you're being inconsistent. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? That's the inconsistency. And Paul develops this uh, by talking through a series of contrasts. He contrasts two sons and two mothers to show that there are two uh, religions. So Paul begins by going back into the book of Genesis to the story of two mothers, Hagar and Sarah. And it was probably this story was used by the false teachers to say you Galatians aren't fully children of Abraham unless you get circumcised like Isaac and fully obey the law of Moses. And Paul turns the tables on them to show them that Abraham had two sons and those sons uh, represent at a deep level two different religions. Now Paul makes a very Jewish argument here and again I'm not going to try to explain all that. That would need a classroom and take a couple of hours and would require really a deep knowledge of the Old Testament which a lot of people today actually don't have although you all may all be exceptions uh, to that. I just don't want to get bogged down in all that because we'll, we'll lose uh, the forest for the trees here. Paul says, look at the story of Abraham because it shows you that we must rely on God's initiative. You see, when God promised to redeem the world, his uh, program really got underway with a man and a woman named Abraham and Sarah. And he calls them out of their home country to follow him. And he begins to have dealings with them. And in time Abraham would have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac from two different women. Hagar the slave woman who is the property of Sarah who gives birth to Ishmael. 
and then Isaac's mother, who was Sarah herself. And both have Abraham as their fathers, but from different mothers. They both came into the world in very different ways. Verse 23 says, But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was through the promise. Abraham was promised a son through Sarah, who would be his heir, to bring blessing to the entire world. That son is the Lord Jesus Christ. But Sarah was a barren woman and very old. And it wasn't humanly possible. It couldn't happen unless God acted. And in fact, to make it clear that this was not humanly possible, God gives this promise and makes them wait 25 years till he's 100 and she's 90. Of course, they get anxious, as anyone would, waiting such a long time, and they decide to help God out. You know the old principle, God helps those who help themselves. And so Sarah offered to Abraham her slave, Hagar, who's young and fertile. By the custom of that day, uh, Hagar would become a second-class wife, and it was legal for a man to get an heir this way. Abraham decides to get his son through human attainment with Hagar instead of waiting on God to act supernaturally. You see, Abraham and Hagar didn't need a miracle to have a child. That's how Ishmael was born, 10 years earlier than Isaac. Now, Paul says this story illustrates two ways of relating to God, two different religions. One that relies on God's initiative and supernatural action, and one that relies on human initiative and action. And he summarizes it, he summarizes it this way. Ishmael, the son of the slave, was born according to the flesh. Consistently through this letter, the flesh is a reference to human nature, fallen human nature and activity. And while Isaac, the son of the free woman, was born of promise. Now, either you will relate to God on the basis of promise of the fulfillment of that promise in the miracle of salvation through Jesus Christ, or you will relate to God on the basis of your human effort, relying on your law performance, your religious performance, the efforts you make to actually achieve the life you want, which is just another way of saying your salvation. This is a picture of grace and works, mainly because of the choices Abraham makes. He could wait for God to act, or he could go out and attain what he was capable of doing. He could choose to have faith in God's promises and wait to receive a son, or have faith in his own ability to work and attain a son. Either way, he was exercising faith, but the choice was between which Savior he would rest in. His, would he save himself, or would he ask and wait for God to do that? And this parallels the gospel. The gospel is that we don't try to attain a righteousness that rests on our abilities or uh, what we can develop. That's why you've really understood the gospel when you understand you have to repent of even your good works, lest you trust in them, lest you hold on to them. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do good works, but you have to repent. You see the tendency to rely on them.
And that tendency is very deep within us. It's rather we receive a righteousness through God's supernatural act in history. And these acts, of course, are uh, God coming to the world in the incarnation of Jesus, his living for us, his dying in our place, his being raised from the dead. When we fail to rest in God and seek to be our own Savior, it produces havoc in our own lives, just as it did in my life as a young man when I tried to make life work on my own terms. But Paul doesn't stop there. He quotes from Isaiah. He cites a prophecy uh, to a barren people to say we should rejoice in God's uh, power. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So, Paul is saying that the real issue is not who is your father, but who is your mother. He says Hagar represents legalism, the legalism of first century Judaism, of the Judaizing false teachers who the Galatians are drawn to. And then he adds, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now, that would have been shocking to these false teachers and probably the Galatians if they understood what they were being taught because it would be like turning to a modern Israeli and saying you are an Arab or turning to an Arab and saying you're an Iranian. Just be utterly offensive uh, to them. And Hagar's children are in slavery. If you're Hagar's children... Uh, and have a religion that is law-based, rules-based, ritual-based, based on doing, you're in bondage. And all religions outside of the gracious religion of Christianity are like that. And sadly, even some versions of institutional Christianity have become a place not where grace reigns, but a place where ultimately the essence is something you must do. The essence of religion says do. And the essence of Christianity is is done. It's been done for you. Then Paul says that Sarah represents the Jerusalem above, not the earthly city of uh, Jerusalem. She is free and she is our mother. She is the mother of all Christians who rely on what Christ has done to make them sons. And then he quotes this passage in Isaiah 54. Now, if you know your Bible, you might recognize that Isaiah 54 is preceded by Isaiah 53, which is a very famous passage one of the suffering servant songs. And that one is the most explicit in speaking of Jesus' substitutionary death that accomplishes salvation. Now this word in Isaiah 54 uh, was Isaiah's prophetic word to the Jewish exiles in Babylon. The exiles thought their national life was over. They would never have a nation again. They had no hope at all. They had failed, and they were now weak and helpless. And the Babylonians were strong and able. And God is saying to them through Isaiah, Now that you're helpless, 
you will see that it is in weakness that my grace works. It's in the lives of those who see their weak and unable that my grace comes and operates. The strong you see are too busy relying on themselves. But I will make you numerous and great, even though at a human level it wasn't possible to see how that could be. You see, this prophecy that Isaiah is uttering actually looks back to Genesis 16, where God sees these two women. Hagar, who was young, fertile, and like, well, all young women. She had, she was beautiful. And then Sarah, who's barren and old. And God chooses to save the world through the barren one. Uh, Through the barren one, all peoples in the world will be blessed. And so, for those of you who like to take notes, here's these two uh, religions. One of slavery versus one of freedom. One based on a law principle, the other on a grace principle. One uh, that is empowered by the flesh and one that's empowered by the spirit. You see, Paul's saying the false teachers are the spiritual descendants of the slave woman, the Gentile, the outcast. And in their heart and their approach to God is like Abraham's uh, trying to have a child through Hagar. And the fruit is just like Ishmael's. They are slaves. And though racially, these uh, Jewish teachers, these Jewish Christian teachers, are actually descended physically from Sarah, spiritually, they're just like the people of Ishmael, the people they despise. So Paul has made his point dramatically. And I want to just develop a few things this uh, means for us. So these false teachers are telling the Galatians that they're just too dirty and flawed to be accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done. And so Paul turns the tables and he says, you Galatians are like these barren women. You're like the barren woman. You're like Israel in exile. If salvation's only by works, then only the fertile can have children. Only people who are able and strong can bear spiritual fruit. Only those who have a good spiritual track record. Only those who can be spiritually faithful can enjoy God's love and participate in his transformation of others. But if the gospel's true, and it is, then it doesn't matter who you are. You may be spiritually and morally an outcast and as marginalized as the barren woman was in those days. It doesn't matter because you will bear fruit. God in his strength is able to bring forth fruit. You see, this is good news for failures, for strugglers who find themselves in a hopeless uh, circumstance because God is not limited by any of those things. And in fact, it is those very things that can awaken you to the need for something outside of yourself. Sarah is especially an encouragement uh, to us 
and to those uh, who are failures and disappointed, because as you can imagine, her whole life in the culture she was in, she felt frustrated. A woman's value was very much related to her ability to have children, and no doubt there had been great heartache for her in all those uh, years. Of course, this is not something that the Bible condones. Um, and in fact, this very passage undermines this terrible mistake. And it's still true in our day, even. There are still, as modern and enlightened, enlightened as we seem, very often women are made to feel second class if they're not able to have uh, children. But the gospel warns us and, and teaches us that there is nothing, including children, not our career or money or power from which we can get our meaning or approval or worth as people. And the gospel calls out to us in our false ways of trying to find self-worth that in fact the barren and the poor and the marginal can be more fruitful, rich, and powerful than all the rest. And they can bear great fruit if they begin to live out of the gospel and serve others. Paul also in verse uh, 29 draws this application. He says that the children of the slave always persecute the children of the free woman. Why? Well, it's because religious people are threatened. They're threatened uh, uh, by the gospel. In fact, they're more threatened by the gospel than irreligious people often. And that's because religious people at some level are deeply insecure, just as I was. They, they are always looking at their obedience, wondering, was it good enough? Was, it, was there enough of it uh, to really have God's acceptance? And only really pride uh, can hide that from a person and keep them from recognizing. But you can see it in the way that you respond to other uh, people. Um, because when your self-image rests on what you do, then you are have a, well, have a tendency to be hateful and hostile to people who are different than yourselves. But see, if we know that our uh, acceptance with God is based on what Christ has uh, done, well, then uh, we are free to love people in all their differences, and even in their irreligion. And we can sincerely want for them what we've found in uh, Christ. You see, Paul says here, and this is the last thought, is that the child of promise inherits from God. That's this language of the Bible for receiving all that comes with salvation, being a part of the very family of God, knowing that you'll never be rejected, knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God. No matter what circumstance you find yourself in, no matter how deeply you've fallen or flat you've landed on your face, God will not let you go. Let's pray.
gracious Lord Jesus, be pleased to open our eyes to see this. Open the hearts and minds of the students here. Anyone here who's uh, standing outside of the receiving the promise and resting on it. For we ask in Christ's name.